All right, church, uh, if you brought your Bible, why don't you open it to Joshua chapter 24, okay? Joshua 24. The 24th chapter is the last chapter in the book of Joshua, so if you get to the book of Judges, just go to Judges, turn left, get the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. Today we're going to kick off a brand new series of messages. Uh, For the next six weeks, we're going to deal with one of my favorite subjects, the subject of family. In fact, I could think of no more important subject to address at the dawn of a brand new year than that of family. Now, before I get started, I want to ask for a favor. I don't want you to picture me up here today as if I'm wearing some sort of old robe and I've got a long gray beard and I'm holding a staff like some Old Testament prophet, because when I start talking about family and I start talking about tradition... I don't want you to hear me say that somehow we're supposed to take the family back to the 1950s. There were problems with the 1950s families, just like there are problems with today's families. But today, I want to challenge you to commit your family to a brand new normal in 2020. There is no doubt in my mind that the family has changed dramatically over the past several decades. I am certain that your family today is very much unlike your parents' family or your grandparents' family, one of the biggest, most striking differences in today's family is that we are busy to the max. We are stretched beyond imagination. You'll hear me say quite often, we're overscheduled and we're undercommitted. That means we say yes to too many things, and then that forces us to say no to some of the right, some of the best things. Our grandparents, certainly our great-grandparents, could never have kept the pace in their family that we believe to be acceptable in ours. Dr. Christian Barnhart is a very world-famous, until he died at least in 2001, a world-famous cardiac surgeon from South Africa. It's Dr. Christian Barnhard who performed the very first successful open heart surgery. This doctor then went on to wrote a book, several actually, and one of them was entitled One Life, One Life. In his book, Mr. Barnhard proclaims that there is no pursuit more important than the cultivation of a godly family. Now, this is not a preacher or a theologian or a seminary professor. This is a world-renowned, very successful heart surgeon, and his claim, there is no pursuit more important than the cultivation of a godly family. In the book, he writes and tells a very personal story. He says, it was a bright April morning when I drove out of Minneapolis. It seemed a century since I had first arrived there, a time longer than all the years before it. In New York, I put the car on a boat, and then I caught a plane for Cape Town, South Africa. I was going home. A northwest wind was blowing when we came over the sea with the waves close below. My wife and my children were there. I had not written much in the last two months, yet I was unprepared for her greeting. Why'd you even come back? She said immediately. There was no longer a smile in her eyes. Oh, gosh, I thought... I've made the most terrible mistake of my life. Don't look so surprised, she said. We've given up on you. We decided that you were never coming back. I responded, but honey, it was only a little delay, and I wrote you about it. No, you wrote once to say that you weren't coming home. We were building valves, aortic valves. We were saving lives, I answered. No, 
you were supposed to be building a family. That is, you were until you dumped it in my lap, she said bitterly. We have ceased to exist for you. And then he concludes, I wanted to say that I'd come home because I loved my children and I believed that I loved her. I wanted to because I felt it. But what could I say now that would not sound meaningless? That's a man that knew success on many levels except home. I can stand before you today. Wait, I can stand before you today. And I can honestly say, because I honestly believe it, it is impossible to overstate the importance of family. It's just impossible to overstate the importance of family. Yes, your work is important. Yes, your community involvement, all that's important. But family and its importance cannot be overstated. You've got a family, I've got a family. More than any other influencer in your life, your family made you who you are today. I tell couples in premarital counseling all the time, you've got this autopilot in the back of your mind as a man. And when you don't know what to do, you're going to become the husband and the father your father was to you. You've got this autopilot. You've got this computer in the back of your mind, this subconscious voice that when you don't know what to do as a mother, when you're confused as a mother or a wife, you... You revert back to something comfortable, something familiar, and it's what your mother taught you. I am who I am today because of my family. You are who you are today because of your family. Good and bad, and no one's family is perfect. Mine's every bit as dysfunctional and broken as yours ever was. We'll talk about some of those things in the coming weeks. So mom and dad, y'all might want to take a few weeks off. The reason family is so important is because family helped you define one very important concept, a concept that would stay with you for the rest of your life. It's this one, normal. What do you think is normal? What do you think is abnormal? What do you think is acceptable and normal? What do you think is out of bounds? You realize that two families could view the very same habit or practice, identical in every way, but one would see it as normal and the other would see it as abnormal. Now, when I grew up in Florida, I had some friends whose families were abnormal in my view. One of the little guys on my baseball team, his name was Scotty. Everybody on the ball team wanted to spend the night with Scotty because they had a game room in their house. And in their house, there was a bumper pool table and beside the bumper pool table, there was a pinball machine. But that wasn't the reason all the little boys wanted to stay with Scotty. You see, in their family room, their den, they called it, they had one of those big velvet paintings on the wall. Now, have you seen these things? Tacky, right? Usually, they're for sale on somebody's trunk, like a 1979 Impala parked on the side of the road. They're stacked up on the trunk. It's a big, shiny, velvet painting of Elvis, let's say, or, or of a leopard, let's say, right? You've seen these, right? Well, in my friend Scotty's den, along with a bumper pool table in the pinball machine, there was a giant, it was like eight feet tall, velvet painting of a topless Mona Lisa. And this family thought it was normal. My next door neighbors, when I was 10 years old, two of my little buddies 
His name was Billy and the other guy's name was Michael. Their parents, as I look back on it now, they were kind of like beatniks, kind of like hippies a little bit. Remember, this is the late 70s. They were into health and nutrition and herbs, I'm sure, looking back on it now. <laughs> Whenever you went and had a meal with Michael and Billy, it could be breakfast, it could be lunch, it could be dinner. When the meal was over, Claire, the mom, she would get up and go into the kitchen. She'd come in with a Tupperware bowl. She'd pop off the lid of this Tupperware bowl, and she'd pass around the Tupperware around the table. Now, in the Tupperware were various vitamins and supplements. Now, they weren't in plastic jars or caps. They were loose. They were multicolored. Some of them were clear. Some of them were white. Some of them were brown. And after every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they'd pop open that Tupperware, pass it around the table, and everybody'd take out a supplement or a vitamin or whatever it was, and they'd take it. Even I did. And they considered this normal. When, when I first started dating Amy, about 30 years ago, I went to her house. We sat down. We were going to watch some television. Now, what you and I might call a remote, Amy calls a smasher. A smasher. It's Amy, honey, why do you call it a smasher? Because that's what you do with it. You smash the buttons. Guess what? After 30 years, now I call it a smasher because smasher has become normal to me. When I was in high school, I split in on my football team, a buddy of mine, his name was Owen. Owen's family loved their family pets. They had a series of golden retrievers. And you know, sadly, dogs don't live as long as we'd like them to. So if you went to their house in high school, you'd find not one, but three stuffed golden retrievers. They all had the same name, Rocky One, Rocky Two, and Rocky Three, in various places in the house. And they thought this was normal. Now, why didn't I think it was normal? And why don't you think it was normal? Because of your family. You see, it's your idea of normal that caused you to look at another family and say, we're better than they are. It's your idea of normal that caused you to look at another family and say, gee, we're not as good as they are. But all of that came from your family. You have grown up for years, decades in my case, determining what is normal, what is acceptable based upon family. Now, in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua makes his final address to God's people. Now, if you don't know about this part of the Old Testament history, it's great. It's one of the best stories in the Bible. It begins with Moses and the great exodus from their bondage in Egypt. But because the people did not honor God, they wandered for 40 years in the desert. The first generation of parents all died off. The only two that remained were Joshua and Caleb. Joshua is now the new leader of God's people. And right before they're to enter the promised land and take possession of it, he gives them one final speech, one final address. Now, these people had been through all kinds of things. I mean, for 40 years, they lived like circus people in tents, and they picked up and moved along, and they picked up and moved along. But they watched God work continually on their behalf, and even in the midst of God's blessing, many of them turned back to their old ways, the idolatry they had known in Egypt. In fact, 
while their parents had all died along the way, they're now responsible for their own families. And their journey has revealed to them both the power and promise of God as well as their own weakness and inconsistency. Joshua has one last opportunity to address the group, to address the group. He uses his final address to emphasize what we call their covenant loyalty. Now that's a, that's a big phrase or word in that Old Testament story of the Exodus and God's promised land. The point of covenant loyalty was that Joshua wanted the people to know that God would remain and has remained loyal to his covenant. The promises he made Moses, their leader, when they first exited Egypt and their slavery. What Joshua wanted them to understand is that there were certain obligations that concerned that agreement and what Joshua hoped they would realize as new parents themselves, they are now leaders of this new generation that will take possession of the promised land. God will keep his word. Joshua is saying, now I want to make sure we keep ours. In other words, what Joshua is establishing in Joshua chapter 24 is the new normal for the families in Israel. The new normal for the families of the Israelites. Look with me at Joshua 24 and verse 14. Verse 14, Joshua said, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Now that's a big word in the Bible. I reminded you of this before. God's not about our success as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives. He's about our faithfulness. Joshua said, number one, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Perhaps that's because like many of us, the children of Israel were fantastic starters, but they were lousy finishers. They got all fired up at the beginning, but eventually they went back to their old ways. Hence the emphasis on faithfulness. Now watch this. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Throw them away. The word throw away there means abolish, obliterate, destroy, depart from, never to return. God's people over and over, if you know the story, during that 40-year wandering in the wilderness, they had run to God and God had blessed them and saved them and, and, and moved them forward, but then they had drifted away. And then God had ransomed them, redeemed them, he'd forgiven them, and then they'd fail or fall away again. Joshua is saying, get rid of those old distractions. Look, it is 2020, and I am certain that there are families in this church that in the coming year, you need to get rid of some of the distractions. You need to throw away those things as your family worships that are not godly. Keep reading. Throw away those gods and serve the Lord. Verse 15. Here it comes, famous verse. You may have this in your den or in your living room, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, now, pause for a second, because we may be in need of a reality check. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes serving the Lord seems undesirable to me. I mean, let's be honest. It's my life, and to live my life by someone else's principles, in this case, God, to live my life, to govern my family by someone else's principles for family, often seems undesirable. So we're no different than they were. Joshua said, look, I get it. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods 
Your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. Here comes famous phrase, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, beginning in verses 16 through 18, the people began to recall all the spiritual markers that they had witnessed. They point out all the great things God did for them. Keep reading. Then the people answered Joshua, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. We're not going to do it. Verse 17. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we have traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Verse 19. So Joshua then said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. In other words, based upon your track record, based upon your priority, based upon your past, based upon my experience in leadership over you, you're not capable of doing what you're saying. He will not forgive your rebellion. He will not forgive your sin. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, watch this, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. Really? Yes. According to the agreement that God made with Moses, that's exactly the way it would be. Moses, I long to bless and lead your nation. I long to care for your families and your peoples. But you must worship and revere me. Don't turn back to those other gods or it all goes away. Verse 21. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Today, the American family has become a witness against itself. Today, the American family is in a darker place than it has been, in my view, in decades. It doesn't take long with the Google to paint for yourself a dismal picture of family in America. You say, how dismal is it? Well, not from a theological resource, not from a church group, not from some preacher somewhere, but from organizations like Pew Research and Gallup and the U.S. Census of two years ago. Here's what we know about family in America. Today, less than half of all children live with two married parents in a first marriage. Less than half. You know what that means? That means less than half of all children in America are still living with mom and dad in a family. That number is down significantly, by the way. It was 46% now. It was 78% back in 1960. Here's something else we know. More than a quarter of all children are living in single-parent households. That's up dramatically in the last two decades, by the way. Grandparents or other relatives are now raising some 1.7 million American children. That blows me away because that doesn't even count foster children. 1.7 million. 22% of Americans believe that a family consists of people who are related by blood, marriage, or adoption. Do you know what that is? That is the legal, traditional definition of family. Only one in five Americans believe that family is defined 
traditionally a father, a mother, children by natural birth or adoption. 78% prefer a more broad, feeling-based definition of family. Anyone who loves one another, we're a family. Anyone who lives in the same place, we call ourselves a family. The Census Bureau estimates that the percentage of cohabiting unmarried couples has nearly tripled since 1980. Tripled in 40 years. In 1960, one in 20 children was born to an unmarried mother. One in 20. Today, that number is one in three. One in three children in the United States of America is born to a single unwed mother. Five out of six adult criminals are from broken homes. Since 1920, 100 years, the divorce rate in this country has increased 1,420%. Man, that blows me away. In fact, the United States has the highest divorce rate of any industrialized nation. You know who has the lowest? Italy. Take an hour using the Google and contrast family in Italy versus family in America. You'll be started at, startled at the contrast, startled at the differences. Maybe that's why ours is a divorce rate among the highest and theirs is the divorce rate among the lowest. Finally, 42% of children of divorced parents haven't seen their father in a year or longer. That blows me away. That's where family is in 2020, modern American culture. Now, let's imagine for a moment to illustrate, let's imagine a third world country somewhere that's having a terrible time feeding their citizens. Let's say for the sake of our example that only 45% of this third world country is healthy. Another 55% are either malnourished or starving to death, flat out. So a little less than half are healthy, greater than half are either malnourished or starving. So the president has a problem on his hands, right? So he gathers together his cabinet. They find the brightest and best minds, all the universities. They put together research teams. They build mountains of paperwork, and they come up with a solution to save their starving nation. president goes on television. He stares into a camera. He speaks to the entirety of the nation, and he says the following. We have good news for our nation. We've decided to redefine the minimum daily nutritional standards. So the fact is, you aren't really starving. In other words, we've lowered the mark. So you people should be happy. Nobody's really starving because we've changed the definition. We've altered the measurements. Look, I believe that's exactly what we've done to family in modern America. We've changed the rules. We've changed the definition. We used to say to teenagers, I heard from parents, youth pastors, coaches in high school, save sex for marriage. That's what I heard growing up. Now what do we tell them? Be sure and practice safe sex. We used to say, commit to a lasting, lifelong relationship under the contract, biblical word, covenant of marriage. Now we say sex between any consenting adults is perfectly harmless. And then we add, well, especially if you're in a committed relationship. Church, that's an oxymoron. There is no committed relationship if the only thing that keeps me with you is my feelings or your feelings. 
We've tried to do the very same thing with family. We've changed the definition. We used to favor more of a form, legal definition of family. Now we favor a more feeling definition. It's no longer about what a healthy family should look like. If you point to a family and say that's what a healthy family should look like, you're considered a bigot, you're judgmental, you're racist, you're narrow-minded. Do you know that in the Bible, the terminology the biblical authors use when describing our relationship with God as father, as child, is always legal? It's always legal terminology. In other words, when the Bible calls God our Father, when the Bible refers to you and I as children of God, it's not this fluid definition that we've decided to adopt. It's concrete. It's unchanging. A great example of this, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, and verse 5. Paul writes, To redeem those who are under the law, that we might re- receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, legal terminology here, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. Again, 275 times in the New Testament alone, the Bible refers to God as our father. What if God had a bad day? What if God just got tired of dealing with all our baggage and decided to change the definitions. Thank God his definition of father and family and son and daughter and child are not as fluid as ours. Chuck Colson is a famous prison evangelist. Uh, He was actually a politician for a while. He worked in the, the Nixon administration, but he came, he came to be the founder of the world's largest printist prison ministry organization. And Chuck Colson wrote several books. In one of them, he writes, as the first community to which a person is attached and the first authority under which a person learns to live, the family established God or society's most basic values. The family established society's most basic values. Do you know what that means? That means that Culture begins with family. That means if you think modern American culture is in bad shape, it's because modern American families are in bad shape. That means that if you go home this afternoon and you watch television news and you don't like what you see in culture, it's not the college campus that's to blame. It's not the Republicans or Democrats that are to blame. It's not a law or a policy that is to blame. It's the family that's to blame. So like Joshua, I'm concerned. I think it's been easy to pat ourselves on the back as the standard is continually lowered and lowered. We compare our family to someone else and we feel pretty good about ourselves. But look, if there is no difference between our homes as followers of Jesus Christ and the homes of those living without God, shame on us. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if I walked over to Kids Jam and grabbed a random third grader or fifth grader and I said, does your family believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, sir, we do. Because in Kids Jam, that's the answer to every question. When your teacher asks you a question, if you go with God or Jesus or the Bible, you're going to be right most of the time, right? Does your family believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, sir, we do. What if I then ask that fifth grader, tell me something. 
what separates your family from another family who doesn't? What would they tell me? What makes your family different because you believe in Jesus Christ than a family who doesn't? Would they say, well, we come to church sometimes on Sundays. Really? Is that the best you can do? How about honesty in the home? How about transparency in the home? How about a demand for respect and authority in the home? How about openness in the home? How about how a mother and father communicate in the home? Not just in front of the children, but even behind closed doors. What about honor in the home? All of which are things that are spelled out poignantly and clearly in the word of God. Church, I believe we can do better. So please allow me, as Joshua did so many centuries ago, to remind you of God's agreement. It hasn't changed all that much. The pieces and the parts are basically the same. Listen, church, God, our Father, desires to bless, lead, guide, honor, protect your family, so long as we honor and worship him in return. So if you're here today on the very first Sunday of 2020, and you're prepared to commit to a new normal, here are three things you need to do, and I'll wrap this up. Number one, to establish a new normal, identify the negative patterns in your family. Identify the negative patterns in your family. I said earlier, you have an autopilot in the back of your mind as a man that when you don't know what to do, you're a little confused, you'll be the father, you'll be the husband your father was to you. A million things have made up your life and these patterns were unconsciously passed down, father to son, mother to daughter, through generation and generation. Sometimes in your home, inconsistency may have been the only consistent thing. We were gung-ho for a while, but then we fell off. Then we came back, then we fell off. Unfortunately, your emotional computer saved everything. What did Joshua tell the people before entering the land? Throw away the gods of your forefathers. Throw them away. Abolish them. If your parent blew it, get rid of it. Do something new. Identify the negative family patterns. Here's number two. Refocus your family's priorities. Refocus your family's priorities. If you want to establish a new normal in your home, you've got to refocus your family's priorities. What matters most? What's most important to you? One day, we will lower your body into the ground. At a funeral on Friday, and the man we buried, who belongs to this church, was one of the most godly, honest, influential men I've ever known. And every one of his three children and all of his grandchildren pointed to the authenticity of Mr. Sanders. What do you want your kids to remember about you? Refocus your family's priorities. Joshua told the people, Choose for yourself. Choose right now. What's most important? Traveling tens of thousands of miles annually to play ball? Participating in every extracurricular activity you can enroll your child in? Squeezing church in when it's comfortable and convenient? What's most important? Think about it. And then number three, obligate yourself to a family pledge. What's wrong with writing this stuff down? Obligate yourself to a family pledge. Joshua told all the people listening that day, they said, hey, you're going to be witnesses against yourselves. 
You just said that publicly. You didn't think it. I heard it. We all heard it. Why not sit down with your wife? Sit down with your husband. Sit down with your kids. Write it out. Write it out. There are two families from the state of New York over 100 years ago that were studied intently. Back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was the Jonathan Edwards family and the Max Jukes family. And psychologists studied their family tree over decades. Jonathan Edwards had 11 children of his own, he and his wife. Mr. Jukes had, I think, about eight. And the point of this illustration is that your family roots, roots are much deeper than you might think. Max Jukes was an unbelieving man. He married an unbelieving woman of like character. Both of them lacked principle. Mr. Jukes had been incarcerated a couple of times in his life. And among his known descendants, and listen, they studied more than 1,200 of his known descendants, 310 became professional vagrants, meaning they never owned real property and they died penniless, 310. 440 physically wrecked their bodies by a debauched lifestyle. 130 of them were sent to prison for an average of 13 years, and seven of the 13 for the crime of murder. Over 100 of them became alcoholics, 60 became habitual thieves, 190 became prostitutes. There were only 20 who learned a trade, and of the 20, 10 of them learned that trade in the federal penitentiary. It cost the state of New York $1.5 million to educate, house, and care for these men, and they made no contribution whatsoever to society. Now, within five decades, another family, the Jonathan Edwards family, was studied. Jonathan Edwards was a man of God, a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He married a woman of like character. And of their known descendants, 300 of them became clergymen, missionaries, or theological professors. Over 100 of them became college professors. Over 100 of them became attorneys. 30 of those became judges. 60 of them became physicians. 60 of them became authors of classic literature. They wrote good books. 14 of them became presidents of universities. Three of them deans. There were numerous giants in industry. Three of them became United States congressmen. And one of them became the vice president of these United States. All because of a family legacy that one man decided to change. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's just that simple. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That should be your family's new normal. That's my challenge, to make that your family's new normal in 2020. Because the time to start caring for your family tree is now. I guarantee you, God is going to keep his end of the bargain. He is loyal to his covenant. But today I wanted to challenge you to keep your end as well. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you are unchanging, immutable. Your love for us cannot and will not diminish or go away. Father, I am grateful that you've made it clear to us when we honor you intentionally, sacrificially honor and worship you. You honor and bless us. 
Father, might the families of Grace Community Church grow stronger this year than they've ever been. Father, may we relinquish the past, the poor decisions I've made, the failures we've made, and may we begin afresh today, committed to a new normal, I pray. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Happy New Year. Go make it a fantastic week, and I'll see you next time.